Hear the word of the Lord from Luke 18, 15 through 43. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, All those I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked them, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you all. It's good to see you. Uh, my name, if you don't know me, my name is Gary Miles. I am one of the elders here at Kishwaukee. And as a reminder, this is the last week of our carousel and preaching, but I do want to thank Brian and Bob, wherever they are, and Jordan, of course, for uh, filling the pulpit all these past weeks. But starting next week, 
um, we have Pastor Trevor Smith coming back to help us um, for a time this fall. Many of you may remember him, may know him. Uh, he pastored here for 17 years, and he took a call out east back home in Charlotte back in 2003. So that will be a blessing to have him back. And in fact, Trevor and Joni are here today, so please take some time to welcome them and introduce yourself or reintroduce yourself, as the case may be. And it suddenly occurred to me that I feel very self-conscious, like a student giving a <laughs> paper before the professor here. So please grade on a curve. I'm a freshman, OK? Before we turn our attention to God's word, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will open our minds and hearts to understand your word this morning and what you'd have each of us learn. I ask especially that this would not be simply a message for the moment, but a truth by which we are changed and will live out. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it seems we've been working through Luke for about a year and a half now. Um, I went back to check and realized it feels like that because it has been a year and a half that everyone going through the book of Luke. Um, but we're on the downhill side of it now. Um, and just as a refresher, Jesus has been traveling south from Galilee through Samaria, ultimately, of course, on his way to Jerusalem, which will begin his encounters in the temple, and ultimately leading to the Last Supper with his disciples, his arrest, his crucifixion, and, of course, the resurrection. So there's lots of good stuff yet to come. And I also want to remind um, us of one of the key themes of Luke. There are, of course, a number. But foremost is understanding the way of salvation through Jesus Christ. And that theme is especially apparent in today's readings. So I titled this message, Approaching Jesus from Parables to Reality. I did that in part because leading up to today's scripture, Jesus in his encounters and his teachings has made extensive use of parables. So we've had parables about how we view wealth, parables about how we're supposed to treat each other, about interacting with the world, parable about Jesus' heart for the lost and about following him and the cost of following him, our faith and our trust in him. But as we see in today's stories, things change. We're now confronted with reality. And that reality hits us at the most significant juncture of our life. How do you approach Jesus? As a good, maybe even a great man? As a wise or moral teacher? As one who blesses us? Or do we actually put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? That reality plays out in the lives of three different people today, and that's what I want to focus on in today's scripture. First, we have the children, and then the rich ruler, and finally, the blind beggar. And in each case, these people are approaching Jesus for a reason. The children, because they are brought there by their parents. The rich ruler, because he wants to understand where he stands with God. And finally, the blind beggar, out of what I'm going to call just literal blind faith. I want to look at each of these cases this morning because I, as we look at each one individually and their differences, I think there are lessons for each of us that we can learn as we approach Jesus. Okay? So let's begin with the children. To understand these stories just a little bit better, I think it's useful to back up just a little bit in Scripture. You may recall last week's message from Bob was a parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And in the parable, Jesus contrasts the Pharisee's 
holier-than-thou attitude with that of the humble tax collector, who recognized himself as a sinner in need of mercy. Well, Jesus ends that parable just before the encounter with the children with this statement in verse 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus summarizes that parable with a key truth regarding humility in people and their place in the kingdom of God. And interestingly enough, the very next encounter we see play out in reality is with babies and children. Probably the very people we would generally identify as the very definition of humble, except for perhaps maybe a short window when they're about two years old. <laughs> that, story, that story opens with, as it says, people <clears throat> bringing babies to Jesus to have him place hands on them. Now, both Matthew and Mark's account of this use the term translated as little children. So the people are most certainly the mothers of the children. So to understand the scene here in that culture, it would have been referring generally to children under 12 years of age. That would have been before Jewish children would be expected to begin learning and following scripture. In Matthew's account of this, he describes it as placing hands on them to pray for them. So the mothers wanted Jesus to bless their children. That was important to them, to receive his blessing for their children. Two of the most common pictures you see associated with Jesus, other than the crucifixion, I suppose, are him with sheep, or lamb, which we saw a number of weeks ago, and him with children. Well, today's story is a very famous scene. Jesus surrounded by children, and much art has been devoted to it. And of course it would. It's, it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? But why do we think that? Well, I'd suggest it's because we still view that stage of life as innocent, as untainted, untainted by the world, still humble. Exactly as Jesus described how we are to be in that verse 14 we just read. Not too long ago, Harris, a polling company, did a poll, and one of the key questions that was asked was, what age do people consider to be the ideal age? Now, I know you're all running through your head thinking what that is, but the results surprised me. In general, people indicated that they thought the best age fell somewhere between the 40s and 50. And the reason had to do almost exclusively with worldly measures, wealth, security, status, position, and so on. Now, to be honest, I'm highly skeptical of generally all polls, but this one in particular, I think, failed because it presumed the ideal age would be as an adult. I have to ask, why would they not assume kids' age would be a valid answer to that? I think I would have said nine or ten years old. So, I did my own little survey, and sure enough, I confirmed overwhelmingly that the people agreed with that the early age is an ideal time of life. Now, I suppose the fact that I got the results that I wanted in my own survey means I should be suspect of my own poll, but I'm not going to worry about that. I think it's the right answer. Generally, don't you agree, that time of life was filled with, you know, imaginative play, freedom to run around the neighborhood, run around town, you have a level of autonomy without losing that childhood innocence. There's no commitments to speak of, no worries, no pressure. I didn't understand politics yet, nor all the social debates that surround everything as an adult. And most of all, it had the pH benefit, that pH, that's pre-hormones. 
It was an innocent stage of life, and it lasts really for a short time. Now, before I go on, I need to say that I do understand that far too many children, in fact, grow up too quickly, and you know, due to whatever circumstances, they suffer that loss of innocence much too early, and I want to be sensitive to that. In an ideal world, all children would enjoy that time of life as an innocent and open and sweet stage of life. This is the picture you need to have in your mind of this encounter with Jesus. Kids of young age, wide-eyed and innocent, being brought to this great man of God by their mothers, asking Jesus to bless them. And you can imagine they enthusiastically, maybe even joyfully, without reservation, they trust their parents and they go to him. Yet they could hardly have known or understood who Jesus was. That didn't matter. They went to Jesus and received or accepted is probably a better word, that gift of his blessing. But then reality hit. Even with the teaching just before this about humility, the disciples missed the point. And the disciples think, these children are not important enough to take time from Jesus. After all, they're just children. And in that culture, there was hardly anyone that was lower on the social ladder than children. Jesus couldn't be bothered by them. He was an important, busy teacher, after all. Well, you know the story. He responds in verse 16. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. What does that mean? And how is that possible? Well, the expressions kingdom of God, or I'm going to throw in kingdom of heaven, They're considered basically synonymous, and they're used extensively throughout the Gospels. And we don't have time this morning to go into all the theological discussions of those terms, but you may recall Jordan spoke on those a couple weeks ago. So I want to just very briefly summarize it as simple as I can as this. The kingdom of God represents the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in us and on earth, in the present and the future. So for us, that means in our lives today, tomorrow, and each day as obedient and faithful believers in Jesus Christ, it's living into the truth and heart of Christ and experiencing the blessings and hopefully the joy that flow from living under Christ's rule. It also then represents the future, ultimate reign of God when Jesus returns again and all believers enter glory with God. So what exactly then does that mean in this context with these small children being blessed by Jesus? Remember, it said some are babies. Or for that matter, what does it mean for us today? What does that mean for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these? Well, I think Jesus gives us the answer. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. There's the key. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child. We all receive the gift by grace of faith in Jesus Christ, right? I know you know that. It's not of our own doing. It's not of our efforts. It's not our position, our social standing. There's nothing we can do. Paul makes this clear throughout his writings over and over again. And I'm not going to go over this now, but take some time this week just to look at Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. You'll grasp the theme of mercy and grace and gift, uh, the gift Christ offers us there. 
You see, little children have nothing to bring, nothing to offer, and nothing they can do to gain entry into the kingdom. But what they do better than anyone else is they know how to receive a gift. And that's the point. The innocence, openness, joy, and excitement with which a child receives a gift is an example of how we should receive the gift of faith in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And through that, then, live out the kingdom of God in our lives. So, I have to ask, are you, like a child, at Christmas time, excited and overwhelmed to receive the gift of faith? Maybe not even fully understanding what that, what that gift means or what it leads to. It's a gift, and a child is overjoyed to receive it. That's how we should be receiving the gift promised us through grace. But then something happens in childhood, doesn't it? It begins to fade. We lose a bit of our innocence, just a small bit at first. Slowly it happens, bit by bit. Then the world begins to corrupt and pollute our view of life. As we grow older, we start to question more. We become more tainted by the world. Doubts creep in. Maybe our faith is tested. Life becomes messy. And our truths are challenged. Maybe we are betrayed and hurt. Life is no longer simple. We have responsibilities and obligations. Need I go on? This is the way of life. That childhood innocence is displaced by worldly concerns, doubts, even cynicism. But, you know, it need not even be that negative. Let me give you an example. Compare how a child receives a gift to how an adult might receive one. The child is exuberant, can't wait to open it, generally needs to be reminded to say thank you because they're already off enjoying the gift. An adult? What's running through their mind? Well, this is sweet, but gee, was my gift comparable to theirs? We start thinking about comparing gifts or repaying them with a gift. Oh man, I didn't get them a gift. See, it can become a gift accounting exercise. That's hardly what a child cares about. And by the way, in terms of gift score with Jesus, don't even bother trying to even that score. It's not even thinkable, let alone possible. Well, this is exactly what is playing out in the next encounter the rich ruler, as he approaches Jesus. He thinks he's on the accounting path to earn eternal life. Now, keep in mind, this man's not corrupt, nor even cynical at this point in his life. It says he's young. But look what the text says. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in Mark's telling of this story, he adds that the man ran up to Jesus. He fell on his knees before him. So this man was earnest in his desire to ask Jesus this question. But the question was one of rules, of measures. What are the ground rules here? I need to track my score. He wanted to know exactly what he had to do in order to gain eternal life. And no doubt he was willing to commit to, to doing it as long as it was under his control. Well, Jesus immediately challenges the man's thinking by asking him, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now, on one hand, Jesus, maybe in a subtle way, is trying to make the man connect the dots that if Jesus is good and only God is good, well then, 
You know, Jesus is hinting at his full deity. But more likely, it's an attempt to make the man reconsider his view of good. It's being measured by worldly standards rather than godly standards. And that fits with his desire to measure worldly deeds as the means to eternal life. But then Jesus leads him on this journey to discover what is really important in the man's life by putting it back on him. So Jesus asked him if he had followed the various commandments. And note that the commandments he lists are not the ones that relate to God, but rather those that specifically relate to how we treat each other, how we live in the world, except one. Jesus leaves off the 10th commandment regarding coveting. And we'll see why. Because that was his one stumbling block, his love of his wealth. Well, how does the man respond? He says, all these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. You know he's thinking, I'm golden, I'm set. But then reality hits. The text says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Don't miss that word Jesus used, lack. You still lack one thing. Now contrast that with the encounter with the children. The children quite literally have nothing. But here we have a very wealthy man, a man of great wealth, it says actually, someone who is certainly lacking for nothing or at least has the means to acquire anything he'd want. And Jesus strikingly uses that word lack to again make the point that the man is using worldly measures rather than godly measures. So the man, anyone would say surely isn't lacking anything, is told he lacks just one thing. And I imagine his response, leaping from his knees with a puzzled look on his face, lacking one thing, me? I even imagine in that moment his mind is racing, thinking that it could, what, it, what it could be and preparing plans to acquire whatever that is. But of course, it's not a thing at all. Jesus tells him what he must do. Again, verse 22. You lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. You see, before he could follow Jesus, he had to rid himself of the stumbling block, his worldly wealth. Well, what specifically did he lack? You might say freedom from that anchor of wealth. He certainly lacked faith and trust in Jesus. Ultimately, that one thing he lacked was the gift of salvation because of his covetousness, that tenth commandment. His sin of greed prevented him from trusting and following Jesus. It prevented him from simply receiving Jesus as a gift. Children had nothing to encumber their acceptance of Jesus. The rich young ruler, he had everything. And all that stuff blocked the way. Well, the story ends with the man walking away, sad even, but still unwilling to give up his wealth. And as we learned a few weeks ago back in chapter 16, no servant can serve two masters. He cannot serve both God and money. Well, I want to make a couple points here before we leave this encounter. First, when people hear Jesus say in verse 24 and 25, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, indeed it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. You can understand with such hyperbole why they would ask, who then can be saved? 
Well, Jesus points out again to how we are utterly dependent upon God for our salvation. He replies in verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And second, don't draw from this conclusion that the fundamental problem was his wealth. As we'll see later in Luke with Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus, Jesus celebrates salvation coming to Zacchaeus' house. But as a tax collector, we can be pretty sure, sure that he was quite wealthy himself. Problem was not the wealth, but the ruler's attitude toward the wealth. It was his God, not Jesus. But we need to be on guard ourselves because we can substitute almost anything for wealth. There's no end to the gods we place in our lives. And they too are stumbling blocks to accepting that gift of Jesus to rule in our hearts. Okay, we've seen the children approaching Jesus with all their innocence. That gives us a glimpse of how Jesus expects us to receive him. And then we see the rich young ruler approach Jesus, believing he could earn salvation. And while he may have had everything, what he lacked was that trust in Jesus, and he ended up walking away, losing salvation like his lost childlike innocence. Well, finally, we have the third encounter, the blind beggar. Now, right off the start, you need to know that Mark's gospel identifies the beggar by name as Bartimaeus. Now, <clears throat> I can only guess that Luke does not name him because, well, as a doctor, I'm sure he anticipated HIPAA laws, <laughs> didn't, didn't want to, you know, disclose his name. I don't know. At any rate, Jesus is at Jericho on his way to Jerusalem, and the text says there was a crowd with Jesus as he passed by. Well, you, you can accept... Ex- you can kind of sense the excitement with the crowds following along as Jesus was traveling through. Well, the blind man, of course, heard the commotion, and he asked what was happening. And the people tell him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And look at the blind man's immediate reaction. Verse 38, he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. No hesitation, no thinking about it, no wondering if he might offend someone. This was a man who had been hoping at some point for an encounter with Jesus. That immediate reaction was of a person who's been hoping to approach Jesus. He knew who he was and the gifts he could receive. He was not going to miss this opportunity. How did he know Jesus was the son of David, which is a reference to Jesus' messianic title and his identity? Well, it doesn't say... And we don't know if he'd been blind since birth or if it came on him later in life. But clearly, he knew enough of Scripture to refer to the Messiah. But how did he know who Jesus was? Faith? Maybe it's all the stories that he had been hearing around town. I don't know, but we can be sure that one thing of his faith, that it was a gift, and he accepted it, and he acted on it. He was an outcast in society, lower than the children even. And he suffers a similar response as the people rebuke him and tell him to be quiet. But how did he respond? Well, look at verse 39. It says, Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. He shouted all the more. Wow, such faith. So Jesus stops, has the man brought to him, Imagine that, the lowest of society, an outcast, but humble in faith. And Jesus exalts him by calling him forward amongst the throng of followers. 
Remember what Jesus said just before these encounters, back in verse 14. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, Jesus asked the beggar a simple question. Verse 41, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? The blind man, waiting who knows how long for this moment, faithfully trusting in the Messiah, and the moment comes. The question he longed to hear, what do you want me to do for you? As if Jesus didn't know what he would ask. Why did Jesus ask him that question? There isn't a person on the planet that wouldn't know what the man would ask, right? Why did he make him ask such an obvious request? Jesus knows what we want, what we need. He knows it before we even know it, right? But he wants us to ask. Show your faith. Live your faith. Ask, for heaven's sake, ask. I don't have time to go into all the theological implications of prayer and God's providence and asking and receiving or not receiving. Eric preached on it many times with Elizabeth's illness. We cannot know the ways of God. We're only asked to trust him and to be obedient in, in faith. And that starts with going to him, approaching him, and humbly asking. We serve a personal Savior. And I look at this story and I think, am I shouting daily to Jesus for him to have mercy on me? You know, in our comfortable lives, it's so hard for us to have that sense of urgency. To stand up and shout, Jesus, have mercy on me, please. I know we are Presbyterians. We tend to be a reserved bunch. But don't you at times just want to approach Jesus with that passion, that level of desperation? Jesus, have mercy on me, please. We are in need of that mercy every bit as much as that blind beggar. And given our comfortable faith, we may be even more in need of that mercy. Well, the story ends with the blind man asking the most obvious question, still in verse 41. Lord, I want to see. And Jesus says to him in verse 42, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Well, the man immediately received his sight, and he followed Jesus, praising God. That's reality. So, we have the children We have nothing to offer, approaching Jesus freely, openly, accepting his gift, perhaps not really understanding what it all means. We have the rich ruler who, having everything, approaches Jesus thinking he can work his way toward salvation, but consumed by all he has, he's unable to accept the one gift that's actually free. And we have the blind beggar who recognizes his need for mercy, passionately but humbly approaches Jesus, asking for that free gift, And trusting with all his heart, it will be given. So where does that leave us? We're no longer children. Well, most, anyway. We're no longer children able to approach Jesus with that innocence of our youth, even if we wanted to. And the fact that you're all here this morning tells me that you haven't walked away, unable to accept the gift like the rich ruler. In the end, we all are like the blind beggar, desperately in need of mercy needing to be healed in one form or another, wanting to see Jesus with the eyes of faith. Jesus simply asks us to humbly approach him in faith, receive the gift of himself, of salvation, 
and go forth to live a life of trust and obedience and praising God in everything along the way. Well, let me put it another way. We should be approaching Jesus with the zeal of the blind beggar, accepting his grace and gift of salvation like the innocent children, while mindful of how easily we can fall into the worldly trappings like the rich ruler. Let me close with this. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells us to come to him. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Go to him. Ask for his gift of grace and mercy like the beggar. Receive it like a child. Then go live it out in the kingdom of God and the spirit and the power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray as we look at these encounters with Jesus that uh, we too would shed our pride, humbly go to you. Nothing in hand, nothing to show, nothing to account, except a love for you and trust in you as our Savior. Thank you for your gracious gift of faith. Help us through your spirit to never lose the pure joy of that reality and to boldly share that truth to the world and that we would do this all to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.